Welcome. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, produced right here in Baltimore, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast as well here in Maryland on DeMarva Public Radio, WSTL 90.7 FM. Uh, and we begin our program this week as we look at the future of food farming and our environment here on Soundbites, the conversation about the phosphorus management tool. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Governor Martin O'Malley's uh, to said that we needed to have a phosphorus management tool to uh, manage the runoff from um, farms into the Chesapeake Bay uh, and the flow going into the bay, destroying the bay. Uh, and so agreement was made. Something happened last minute where agreement was unmade, and a study was then put in place before the PMT was put in place uh, as a state rule, uh, and that study was finished. And now we've also seen that uh, the Democrats lost the election, and in that wake, Governor Martin O'Malley has said that he wants to institute uh, the phosphorus management tool. Uh, what would that mean and in what form? Uh, we'll talk about the study and what this all means for all of us in the, in the wake of this political announcement. We are joined by Kevin Anderson, who is president of the Maryland Grain Producers Association and a grain farmer at Wimberley Farms in Princess Anne County. Welcome back to the program, Kevin. Good to have you with us. Thank you, sir, for having me. And Scott Edwards joins us, co-director of Food and Water Watch Justice Project at Food and Water Watch. Scott, welcome back. Good to have you Good with morning, us. Good morning, Mark. Thanks. Lee Richardson joins us, a grain and poultry farmer and a farm bureau member in Wicomo County who's appeared in the show numerous times. Lee, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And Secretary Earl Hans, Buddy Hans, of course, the Secretary of the Maryland Department of Agriculture, uh, uh, who joins us here speaking for the administration as well. And Secretary Hans, welcome back to this program. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here at talk at steinershow.org. You can tweet me at Mark Steiner, log on to our Facebook pages, 410-319-8888. So, Secretary Hans, let me start with you. So so in the the wake of this announcement by uh, Governor Martin O'Malley, um, I'm I'm curious what this means. I mean, we see that these phosphorus management uh, plans that we've been talking about for decades and and, and, – um, and, and had it put off to kind of re- do the study that was, uh, that was recently um, released at, the, at Salisbury University um, uh, by Dr. Durker, uh, Durker. Uh, and I'm curious um, what, what this means right now. Well, as you know, Mark, we've been through a bunch of starts and stops in the last 18 months. The governors always believed that the phosphorus management tool needed to be implemented and as you also have mentioned, we had to have a study commissioned, and we did that through Salisbury University. That study was released about a week and a half ago. Uh, all during this time, the governor has asked that uh, we realize that there will be certain impacts to the agricultural industry, and he asked that we try to find ways to mitigate those impacts. And as you look at the study that was released, certain scenarios were run where certain programs would be instituted to help offset the cost that we assumed would happen. Uh, so right now, we've uh, the governor asked on Friday that the regulation be submitted to AELR, and we are going through that regulatory process. So and so, Lee, let me again bring you back in here, and, and uh, first time in this conversation to talk a bit about what this means. So it looks as if, I mean, well, let me say this first. The Secretary Hans, does this mean this will be like an executive order on the part of the on the part of the governor? Will this have to go before the state legislature before the next governor takes office? What's the process? Well, it's going through the normal regulatory process. Uh, the, the regs were submitted for publication last Friday. They will be published in the register, um, we assume, on December the 1st. Uh, the process is that ALR will take those regs under consideration. There's a, a mandatory 30-day comment period, and at the end of that comment period, we can take those comments under advisement. And if there's something significant that comes out in those comments, we make changes. Uh, if we do make changes, that would mean that we'd have to go back and resubmit those regulations. Uh, the law requires that once the regulations are published in the Maryland Register, uh, there has to be at least 45 days before the governor or the department can uh, implement those regulations. So what does this mean from your perspective, Lee Richardson, as a, as a, as a grain and poultry farmer and a member of the Farm Bureau? Well, it obviously, it means a lot more cost to me, a lot more cost to the taxpayer. Um, in my eyes, they do very little income to the state. You know, they, they come out and say it's going to benefit the Bay by so much and all this. Um, 
I see that not at all. Nobody has shown the farmer any science to justify that. They've got it. They claim, but they don't want to show it to us. I guess um, maybe it's not complete yet, as they as we as we know. Um, as far as the economic analysis, analysis was done for our lower shore only. It did not reflect what it would cost um, the municipalities for sludge use on the farms because they'll not have to probably go to landfills with their sludge. Um, organic farmers, or uh, we have a, a local organic farmer that has now moved out of state. He's moved to out west somewhere, said Wycall, to uh, farm out there because he'll no longer be able to make his operation work here due to regulations. So that's what we're dealing with. I didn't hear about that. Ted Wycall moved his farm? Yep, he's uh, going to move out there for a year and give it a try. Uh, and it was all because of regulations. Well, I have to get him on the air. He, he, he couldn't, he couldn't uh, stay in business here. I have to get on the air and talk to him about that. I know him well. So, Scott Edwards, just talk about from your perspective in the environmental community what this means. I've heard so many mixed things about who was involved in the process uh, of this, who was not, um, and the questions it raises. One thing I read about, and you can comment on this as well, is that, is that we've, we've seen the cost to the farmers, which is, seems to be pretty huge. Of course, I said I didn't talk about what the costs were to the Bay or anything else. So, your perspective on this. Right. Um, so from our perspective, I think it, it's clear that, that there is an ongoing phosphorus problem down on the Lower Eastern Shore. And um, this has been, been verified time and again through reports and studies. As a matter of fact, even uh, Secretary Hans's um, Department of Agriculture has a recent um, report out on agricultural progress towards meeting the Bay TMDL. And, and this covers 2012 and 2013. And, and interestingly, in the report itself, um, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, the, the idea behind the TMDL state work to, to improve the Bay, to meet these benchmarks, these milestones of, of pollution reduction, and phosphorus is certainly the major pollutant of, of concern when it comes to the health of the Bay. Um, what's interesting about... Um, the Department of Agriculture's report is that all of the areas in Maryland, all the watersheds where you look at the Potomac, the Patuxent, the Western Shore, are all meeting uh, uh, some of their demands for phosphorus reduction and nitrogen reduction. They're all going downhill. It seems that they're on track for meeting the 2017 uh, mark. But down the Eastern Shore, which is dominated by the poultry industry, down the Eastern Shore, they're actually increasing their discharges of phosphorus from 2009 to 10 um, and up into 2012. We're not seeing reductions in phosphorus like we are in the rest of the state. So from, from our perspective, if you're going to restore the bay, you have to address the obvious problem that there's too much phosphorus being dumped on the land down the eastern shore. It's also supported by the fact that County after county down the eastern shore, whether you go to Somerset County, um, where uh, Mr. Anderson is, or, or any of the other counties where they're, they're, it's poultry-intensive, um, the soils are just simply saturated with phosphorus to the levels of 85, 89, up to 90 percent of soil uh, of phosphorus saturation. So the, the PMT is an obvious step from our perspective towards trying to remedy this problem, and there will be costs. There are costs when industries are asked to clean up their mess. Um, every industry in this country, we ask to properly dispose of their waste so we're not harming communities and harming water systems. And so, yes, there will be costs. Um, much of the cost has been borne by federal and state taxpayers and will continue to be borne by federal and state taxpayers. And we'd like to actually see a shift in that. Um, but but there, there will be a cost to asking this industry to clean up but, it, but it's necessary. It has to happen if we're ever going to restore this day. So, so Kevin, let me get your thoughts on this. I mean, I, I'm, I, it, it's, I, mean I think that is, is there any argument that, that, that phosphorus is one of the main sources of what is deteriorating the bay and destroying the bay? The question is then what to do about it, and if not the phosphorus management tool, then what? Well, um. I think that the, the phosphorus management tool could be an improvement over the old phosphorus site index, Mark. But, but, but realize that this phosphorus was applied to the land under current scientific recommendations. 
This wasn't a pollution site where someone went out and did more than was recommended by by the scientific community. The scientific community had told farmers for years to put nutrients in the soil is like putting it in a bank account. So we have built up the fertility in these soil over the years from university recommendations. Now we're to the point that our business plans and everything has been based on this use of poultry litter. And under the current under the proposed phosphorus management tool, it would devastate. It's, it's, it's like going from, from 65 posted mile-an-hour speed limit on 95 to 35. And, and we're, asking for, we're asking for it to gradual step-downs instead of these massive step-downs that they're requiring. We're asking for some science to tell us what levels we're at is at what pollution levels, and there's none of that's been brought to the ag community. So it's hard for the ag community to buy into something and participate in something that hasn't been proven to them. So, so let me, let me just, Secretary Hans, so how is this going to be implemented? So are you saying this, A, this is going to be implemented? Will it be implemented gradually? Will it be implemented uh, wholly at once? So, uh, so it, over a two-year period or one-year period, what's the plan? Well, the current proposed regs that we've sent to ALR have a six-year phase in, uh, beginning in t- crop year 2017. Uh, the first in 2016, uh, farmers would develop their nutrient management plans. We would run the tool against the old P-site index, so farmers would have information at that time to know what changes there are going to be to their operations. So, in 2017, those farmers with the highest FIV levels. Uh, starting at 450 and above, would begin implementation. Two years later, we'd have a second category, 450 down to 300, that would begin implementation. And then the last two years, the, those left below that would begin implementation. And we did that to give those farmers with those highest levels more time to implement because they will have the greatest impact. So are there, are there plans to deal with, before I turn back to, 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 uh, to Lee and then Scott here, uh, are there, are there, um, are there how, how is the state going to address the question of cost? Both the cost, because we did not see what the cost of the bay would be if it wasn't implemented. That was not part of the study. But what about the cost of the farmer that was in this study? Well, we've tried to propose, <clears throat> excuse me, We've tried to propose some programs to help offset those costs. We would increase the transportation program to get the litter moved further out. Uh, we'd provide cost share for those poultry producers for the cost, additional costs they would incur for cleaning out their houses and moving that manure. And uh, the, we already have begun programs to pay for alternative energy projects to help utilize the uh, litter that might be available. So we've tried to address most of those issues, although we can't address all of the issues. And I think. Another point I would like to make is that if you read through the regulations, there are certain provisions in there that make allowances. Uh, we've made a provision in there that for organic, they would not have to uh, eliminate the use of an organic source of phosphorus in their crops because there's really not anything uh, available that they could use as an alternative, and we did not want to see the organic industry uh, leave the state. So we have allowed a provision in there to pr- help protect the organic industry. So, and, and but, but Mark, is this Lee? Mark, who is this? Kevin. Kevin, Kevin go ahead. Yep. Um, you know about the analysis and the cost on Dr. Derricker's study. They transported the manure fifty miles. Well, if you transport manure off the lower shore, which is where the, the problem se- perception seems to be, the average location of the transportation would be the Walmart parking lot in Cambridge. Is about how far we would get it with the cost analysis that they've done, and 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 the, so the cost of moving the manure from Somerset County to Cambridge Walmart parking lot does not help the water quality and the bay at all. To to move manure out of the water out of the watershed, you have to move it 130 miles or move it to an area that isn't saturated with phosphorus, you have to move manure 100 miles. So that's doubling the cost that's in Dr. Derricker's study. So, so, let me, so, Scott, let me ask you very quickly before I turn to Lee. So what he just said is probably true. So, I mean, I think that 
that that, right. that the cost issues are real, but right. I think it just shows how difficult the situation is to resolve. But it is a difficult situation, and it's a difficult situation because of the proliferation of the poultry industry down on the eastern shore. Uh, um, I believe it was Mr. Anderson who talked about how they had the, the phosphorus site index for all these years, and they were just getting used to that, and now they're bringing in new rules and, and how unfair it was to have to deal with these new phosphorus rules. But you have to think in the context that, that the reason why the phosphorus site index is not enough is in part because they keep bringing in more birds to the eastern shore. There's, there's more manure. The land gets increasingly saturated. Um, the, the, the Maryland Department of Ag report that I just cited to um, says that the reason why there are increases in phosphorus loads down the eastern shore in two, from 2011 to 2012 are because of animal population productions increasing and a reduction in the compliance rates for nutrient management plans down to 70%. For, for farms that are, are not adhering to the plan to properly apply manure. So um, this, this, there is something new that's needed, and the one factor that's always left out of the cost discussion, yes, this is going to cost industry, and this is going to cost taxpayers, as it always has, um, but who's not being charged here are the companies who own these birds that produce all of this waste. And that's a big missing piece of this puzzle here. Um, companies like Purdue and Mount Air and other companies reap a huge economic benefit from concentrating their industries down on the eastern shore, billions of dollars, billions. And yet here we're talking about $21, 20 $22 million. That's the cost to industry that's not going to be borne by these big companies. That's that's dwarfed by the $80 million cost to taxpayers to try to subsidize the, the implementation of the PMT. And so we're all paying for the disposal of a waste that an industry should be paying for. If any other industry tried this, if the coal-fired power plants in Maryland called up and said to the state of, uh, state, um, citizens of Maryland, we'd like you to pay for disposal of our waste, or if any manufacturing plant, we'd say, no, that's the cost of doing business. You should be taking care of that. And that's the message we should be sending to these big companies is getting rid of this waste is the cost of doing business. You reap the financial benefit of concentrating your industry in the Eastern Shore. Clean up your waste. Clean up your mess. The Bay shouldn't have to suffer. Lee? Yeah. That's the same drumbeat we've been hearing for years. You know, water keepers and food water wash. Same drumbeat. Got to get rid of the poultry companies. They got to clean up their mess. Well, that coal burning plant, guess how they cover that cost? They start charging more for their electricity. The person that uses that electricity is going to pay the bill, period. In our situation, they could raise the price of chicken, but that's raising the price of chicken in Maryland, but not, you know, where they're selling out of state. But Delaware's not raising their price. Virginia's not raising their price. Um, Alabama's not raising their prices. So that puts it at a disadvantage. But it's pretty out of business or whatever poultry company you want to look at. That's what we deal with. We can't pass the cost on far as that goes when he gives that argument. But at the same time, me as a farmer, I would rather have chicken manure for fertilizer than commercial fertilizer. Why? It's more beneficial. It, it's a slow release. It's better for the bay, in my opinion. Now, if you go out there and overapply it like we did 25 years ago, yes, there is an issue. But since then, we have cut our rates down to two to three times per acre. We have done uh, new equipment that spreads it better, gets it more even, so it's not piled, you know. We've improved, uh, we've just reduced amounts over the years, time and time again. And, and, you know, now we're finally to the point they want to make it zero. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense because what they're talking about is the levels going up in the waterways around here. And uh, Geological Service says that water's 30, 50 years old. Well, look what we did 25, 30 years ago. It's finally worked through the system. So, obviously... We're getting an overload from that back then, but they don't want to look at those kind of reports. They want to look at what what, the, what puts Purdue out of business and all the other poultry companies. That's the goal. Period. So, well, but, but buddy, and, and, and Lee, that's not that's not what's really going to happen because we were really looking for an economic impact study that we did not get. But it's your twenty-two million dollars that it's going to cost the farmer. That's $22 million the farm community doesn't have to spend in the community. 
And some people have told me that that money rolls over five or six times. What does that mean, so buddy? when you take the economic kit that is going to happen to the lower shore, when that $22 million is times five, six, or seven times, that's an extraordinary economic kit to all of the business economy on the lower shore. Not just the ag community, the grocery stores, the car dealers. I mean, when you start talking... Twenty-two million times seven—that's a lot of money. So, but, uh, that's a big hit. So, I, I guess, I guess, for people trying to figure this out, whether they're on the eastern shore, the western shore, whatever part of the state they're in, is trying to figure out: a, does this help the bay? B, does it make life for the farmer more difficult and cost more? And is everybody sharing the cost? I mean, so I mean, I think that that. I mean, those are the big issues, I think, for most people, especially people who aren't farmers, um, uh, Kevin, to really want to put their hands around it. A, does this help the Bay? Is there any argument that this will help the Bay? Well, um, um, we have no scientific proof that it would help. You, you have a common sense approach to it that, yes, it will. Is there a problem with hot phosphorus soils on the lower shore that needs to be addressed? Absolutely, Mark. I'll be the first farmer to stand up and say that. But but does the ag community think this drastic step is the way to approach it? I don't think so. And also, in the legislation, there is no guarantee of this funding that, that you all are talking about. This tool is going to be implemented. And if our new governor doesn't fund it, the law is still in effect. If the cost share money is not there to help us, we're out of luck. It's not that if the funding's there, it's delayed until the funding is approved. If if this law is passed, we have to follow it with no money from the taxpayers or the state if Governor Hogan decides that's the avenue he wants to take. Well, we, we, I think we have a brief break here. We'll come right, right back and pick up that point and, and, uh, in this conversation. And... Uh, because if uh, if Governor-elect uh, Larry Hogan is a man of his word, I have no doubt that he is, then he is not. He's going to be cutting taxes, not raising any more money or spending any more. So we'll talk about what that means and go right back to our other guests who are here. You heard uh, Kevin Anderson, who is a president of Maryland Grain Producers Association, Lee Richardson, who is a grain and poultry farmer and an active member of the Farm Bureau, Scott Edwards, co-director of Food and Water Watch, Justice Project of Food and Water Watch, and Secretary Earl Hans, Buddy Hans, the Secretary of the Maryland Department of Agriculture, and you at 410-319-8888. We'll be back in one minute to conclude this conversation. Welcome back to Soundbites and the Mark Steiner Show. Before we get into our conversation with the folks at the Brassica Festival, talking about greens here in the Park Heights community of Baltimore, uh, we are going to conclude our conversation here about the phosphorus management tool, which is probably one of the most important political decisions being made here uh, in Governor Martin Malley's uh, process of leaving uh, the governor's mansion. We are talking with Kevin Anderson, who is president of the Maryland Grain Producers Association, grain farmer at Wimberley Farms in Princess Anne. Uh, Lee Richardson is a grain and poultry farmer. Uh, farm, uh, farm Bureau member in Wicomico County. Scott Edwards is co-director of Food and Water Watch Justice Project at Food and Water Watch. And Secretary Earl Hans, of course, but he Hans is the Secretary of the Maryland Department of Agriculture. Uh, and you all are here at 410-319-8888. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Write to us at talk at thesteinershow.org. Uh, 410-319-8888 is the number here. So I, I'm thinking about what, uh, Scott, what... Uh, what um, well, let me go to, to Buddy first, then go right to Scott, about what... what, what what Kevin just said, Buddy Hans, uh, that the new governor doesn't look like a man who's going to put any more money up for anything. So what does that leave it all? Well, Kevin is correct. You know, we've proposed programs and some funding mechanisms to try to offset those impacts, but there is no requirement for the next administration to fund those programs. And uh, so if that were true, as Kevin points out, when you look at the study, 
and you take away the benefits of those cost-share programs, it significantly increases the impact to the industry. And, you know, as Kevin said, uh, that, that money that those farmers now have to pay for those things are dollars that don't get spent in the community, and, and it does have an overall impact, which is why we've tried to provide some mechanism to reduce and mitigate those impacts. But there certainly is not a guarantee, and you cannot introduce a regulation and require certain funding uh, before that regulation is implemented. So does that mean the regulation, just be clear with the, in political speak, that means the regulation could be implemented with or without the money attached, correct? That, that is correct. Okay, just want to make sure we understand that. So, so um, Lee, let me ask you a quick question and then go to Scott because we have to conclude this in a few minutes. But well, One of the things that one of the people uh, in an article in the Bay Journal I saw interviewed, Tom Simpson, who's a, an agricultural specialist, used to be uh, here in, in, in Maryland, said that... Uh, um, I'll just read this, and you can comment on it. So because a replacement fertilizer only needs to be nitrogen, it could be much cheaper. Um, saying that we don't have to go through all the – it could be less than the money people are talking about to deal with, it, with the problems on the land. Because we would just be applying nitrogen, it would be cheaper, you say? Yes. Well, see, I don't just get nitrogen out of my chicken manure. I get a lot of minor elements, and I also get potash out of it. So it's not just going to be nitrogen that I'm supplementing when it comes time. You know, uh, it wouldn't be nitrogen alone because I don't apply enough manure to all my nitrogen anyway, so I'm already buying some nitrogen. But there's also the minor elements that we would be replacing, certain ones, and then also the, the potassium would be a big issue. So the, no one be getting from it. But before I turn to Scott and, and get the final thought from the secretary, um, uh, Lee, uh, one of the things that, that also this article was talking about, and we've talked about in the air here a lot over the last 22 years, um, is that all the offset practices that, that, that farmers do to, to, uh, um, to, 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 to stop nutrients from going into the bay, uh, stream buffers, cover crops, um, and, and things like that, that there have never really been any studies to say whether or not they're effective and and I, I guess part of the problem is it seems like we've always danced on this issue. But is, do, do we really understand how effective this is, or, or or what your response would be about what to do to ensure the runoff, at least from our farms, is not as great as it is? Well, it, part of that problem is the difficulty of being able to figure that you know the science you know on that. But at the same time, very little money spent there anymore. You know, our extension services drain to the point that they don't even do research hardly anymore like they used to. Um, that's how we learned to use less manure in the first place when they came out on our farm and showed us results and stuff like that. They used less and less and less. But that funding is no longer there anymore um, that they used to have. And so, and then these environmental groups don't spend any money on research for that. It's what can we spend money on to prove that, you know, to stop this, you know, all manure period. You know, but nothing really to the results, and so we don't really know what we're getting for our money. Scott Edwards, I mean, th- this is this is clearly a, a a volatile subject, both for the farmers and for the and 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 the people who are advocates for the bay. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like it's going to be implemented, um, and I mean, and it, and it, so I'm talking about how, how, what do you think the political the economic fallout will be, both for the farming industry and for the rest of the state. Well, it's interesting that that the incoming Governor Hogan, um, yes, he he says he's committed to um, uh, cutting down on spending. Um, He also, though, says he's committed to the health and restoration of the Chesapeake Bay. And and we we hope to take take his word on that and that he sees the importance of implementing programs that, in fact, do restore the bay. Um, This PMC debate's been going on for years. But the debate about the health of the bay has been going on for decades, and it's not getting any better. The so last summer, the, the size of the dead zone in the Chesapeake Bay was, was massive. It, it's not getting smaller. And so um, anybody, and, and again, we hope that, that Governor Hogan, incoming Governor Hogan, lives up to his commitment to bay restoration, that they understand that the bay needs to be re- restored and that there is a cost to bay restoration, and it's a cost that everybody in Maryland has to share in, and, and everybody, almost everybody does. There's, there's the, the septic user's fees and the flush taxes and, and lots of different fees because the people of Maryland have decided as a state that bay restoration should and is a priority. Um, 
So, so yes, there is going to be an economic fallout from restoring the bay, but it's way past time that in Maryland the biggest polluters of phosphorus take responsibility for their discharges and start to do things like the PMT. You know, we hear that this is so sudden and this is just being put upon folks. I can tell you that the environmental community and folks who care about the Bay wish that the PMT had been implemented three years ago when it was being discussed. And so we're looking at now a six-year implementation plan. So from the time we wanted it to be implemented fully to the time it actually is being implemented, is a nine-year period. This is not being rushed through. This is a very gradual implementation. Um, this is a very reasonable approach. And, and yes, there will be costs. Um, I, I do have to note that much of the money that goes down to the eastern shore for conservation practices comes from the federal government. And so, for example, in Somerset County, over the past you know, 12, 14 years, um, we've seen almost $17 million in federal money going into, into Somerset County for farm conservation practices. So this is not all state money, so it doesn't all hinge upon the state, but the state certainly does play an important role. And I just want to reiterate, so should these poultry companies. They should play an important economic role in restoring the bay and making sure that the waste stream from their product doesn't keep having the impact. So we do have to kind of wrap this up because we have another segment following right on the heels here we have to get to. But so I'm going to ask Kevin if you would give us a, a quick, like, 30-second thought uh, before we turn to Secretary Hans for 30 seconds. Uh, my 30 seconds would be uh, people buy into and believe in which they help to create. And I think you need the agriculture community to buy into anything. Uh, that's implemented on the land to help water quality. And I would also remind everybody that the bay flows from the north to the south, and it's very unlikely that the water from the Tangier Sound is causing dead zones north of the Chop Tank River. And I, I just want to say here that, that I will be seeing Buddy Hans and others this, this Thursday. Uh, the, the 15th Eastern Shore Planning Conference will take place on November 20th from 8 a.m. 8 to 5 p.m. You can join us at the Historic Tidewater Inn in downtown Easton for a conference about the future of agriculture on Maryland's Eastern Shore. I'll be um, monitoring a panel with all three Delmarva Agricultural Secretaries. Uh, you can find more information about the event and registration at eslc.org. And we'll be broadcasting that next Tuesday. And this will clearly be one of the topics that we were, are going to wrestle with on that day. Uh, and, um, Buddy Hans, you have a closing, a very quick closing thought? Well, as you've mentioned, this was the governor's priority he'd like to see implemented before he leaves office. And I think if you look at the current regulation as it's proposed, you'll see that we have been listening to the industry's concerns, and we tried to address as many of those concerns as we possibly could. I think you also heard today that our farmers in the last seven years have cut significantly the application rates of poultry, liver, and manure all across the state. And what I would like to tell your listeners is that our Maryland farmers are the best farmers in this entire country when it comes to protecting the environment. There is no other state in this country that has regulations in place and controls on farmers that we do here in Maryland, and, and they are the best. So I'm going to thank you, Secretary Hans, for joining us. See you Thursday. Lee Richardson and Kevin Anderson, I deeply appreciate you always being willing to come on and, and speak for the farmer and be a part of this program. I hope they see you all this week as well. Scott Edwards from Food and Water Watch, thank you so much for being here. We'll continue to cover this. Uh, and Lee Richardson, let me just tell you, we just got, I just texted back and forth to Ted White call. It is true. He's moving to Montana. Yep. So yep. We'll, we'll be talking about him, why organic farmers are leaving the state. We'll hear what he has to say. Thank you all for so much for, uh, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. We're going to take a brief break and come back and look at the Braska Festival coming here to Park Heights. Don't go away.
Welcome back. This weekend, the Brassica Fest 2014 is taking place uh, and uh, on Park Heights, a uh, community that is taking hold of issues about food and our future like no other community in Baltimore. We're here with Willie Flowers, who's the executive director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance. Karen Washington is co-founder of Bugs, Black Urban Growers, a community gardener. Uh, board member of the New York Botanical Gardens, a Just Food member and Just Food trainer, leading workshops on food growing and food justice for community gardeners all over the city uh, throughout the food justice programs. And also Warren Blues in the house. Uh, Greener Gardens is his farm, one of the most amazing urban farms I've ever witnessed in my life, and a man who knows uh, more about, about greens than anybody I ever heard of. So good to have the four, three of you with us. <laughs> good. Nice being here, Mark. So welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Karen. So, Willie, quickly, let's start with you and just talk a bit about what this Brassica Fest is. Um, the Brassica Festival is our way of demonstrating that um, local food is um, the way to go for health reasons and for just sustainability in communities. It is an outlet to um, uh, significant food access, and we promote it in our community. That is uh, considered a lot of things, but it, it is a community without a grocery store, so that ex- speaks for itself. That's amazing. But the solutions are in what we can do to empower ourselves, and we do that by growing our own food, demonstrating avenues to how uh, individuals can take control of their own um, health, their own um, finances through basic um, backyard farming, community gardening, food hubs, all these things that are outlets that we don't know about, and we use the Brassica Festival as a way to showcase those avenues so that people can be better off physically, they can be better off as it pertains to uh, being community-oriented and just feel like they, they have a chance. Um, we cannot, and we, we take it seriously when, when we say this, we cannot outspend the multinationals, the McDonald's, we can't outspend Burger King, Pizza Hut, but we can do... Uh, traditional grassroots efforts to um, fight, and uh, that's kind of what we're doing. And the Nebraska Festival is an example of that. It's a it's a local uh, grassroots conference about food, about greens. And brassicas are all those: the collards, the kale, arugula, cabbage, uh, broccoli, all of them, and they are all healthy. And it's the best thing that you can do for yourself. Turnips and more. I think that it's, I think it's controlling. Our food is what you're saying we can do. Exactly. You may, you, you may, people want to go to McDonald's. They're going to be there. They're, they're, they're a huge corporation. You can deal with them on different levels. But people can control our own lives is what we're talking about here. Karen, could you pick up on that point? Because I think um, uh, uh, this whole idea of understanding also these greens in our midst, I love the name of it, Brassica Festival, is really important. So talk a bit about what it means to people to begin to control their own food existence. Well, it's in terms of what we call as food sovereignty, really taking ownership of where our food comes from, uh, tying it to our tradition, to our culture, uh, and also to our history. I think it's very, very important. I'm so proud and happy to, to be a part of the Brassica Festival on um, this weekend because greens is so important to our health and well-being, and the fact that we're celebrating greens in the fall of the year where they are really at the prime of being delicious, and people are now using part of their tradition. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. So as an African-American, I know we're looking forward to collard greens and turnips and mustard as, as a celebration of, of our culture and history. Yeah, I, I, that's one of my favorite times of year just for that particular reason. And it's new, <laughs> new, new ways of cooking, uh, all that stuff. And, and uh, Warren Blues, it's good to, I'm glad you could make it in the studio today. I yeah, appreciate sure. it. And I was very taken by your farm that you've done in the middle of Baltimore and the acres that you've been able to, your neighbors are letting you use land to kind of come in and build. No, no. All that land is ours except, yours, for the, except for the lot next that, door. Except for the Correct. lot. Yes. Sorry. I uh, stand corrected, far and blue. Um, but but what, what's amazing to me is when we are visiting your farm, I just want to talk a bit about the power of greens. Because um, you showed us, I was there with Willie Flowers when he introduced me to you, that the, the, all the kinds of greens that you all grow on that, on that urban farm. I mean, more than I knew real, the, you, you knew existed. Greens, I don't even know people grow anymore. <laughs> yes, I uh, guess we do like about five different types of kale. Uh, I have about three different types of collard greens that's growing. Most people just say collard greens. They don't know it's <laughs> at least a half a dozen of them, you know. Um, we do um, cabbage. 
Savoy smooth cabbage. Uh, we do kohlrabi, which is another part of the brassica family. And it's, it's turnip greens, mustard greens, turnip tops, bottoms, all of it. You know? and, and, and what's interesting about that is a lot, a lot of the, lot of the um, a lot of greens you grow that you introduced me to when I was there at your farm are greens are African based greens. Yes. Right. Yes. Things we don't usually grow here. Right. 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 That's the African spinach and whatnot that we grow that uh, most people here don't even know about. You know. It, it, Karen, there's such a connection to me. It seems between the, the the sense of culture and history and community, and greens. That yes. Well, it's it's very very important. Um, like really was trying to say, we're trying to teach our young people exactly where food comes from. I think for too long our narrative has been taken away from us as African Americans and people of color exactly where our food um, was coming from. And I think this was demonstrated when we were serving children and asking children, especially in urban areas where the food was, was coming from, and they were telling us a supermarket. So right then and there, we knew we had a major problem, a major problem when it came to history, because um, as African Americans and from descendants from Africa, we were the ones, I mean, it's in our DNA, we were the ones who were growing food in this country long before anybody else. And so it's important that we relate that history to our young children is that, you know, farming is in our DNA. Um, your, your food comes from a seed that is planted in the ground, and that's where you get your food, and that's where you get your nourishment. So I think, you know, it's, it's critical that we understand this. It's critical that we're now providing information and education, especially to our younger kids, exactly where their food comes from, why it's important to eat food that is healthy, and also to let them understand the difference between food that we grow and food that is seen in supermarkets uh, such as processed food and junk food, which have which the companies have co-opted our, our, our names um, and characteristics of food when they label stuff as all-natural, organic, no artificial flavoring, to mean healthy. Uh, and Willie Flowers, uh, um, one of the things I think I want to let people know again um, is why it's important that this Brasca Vessel is being held and started here in the Park Heights community uh, and why it's there. And the fact that, that, that what you have done, you and others have done, Sasha and others have done in that community, is create an urban farm that is part, becoming part of the culture of this neighborhood, that it's more than just, I mean, people have urban farms and they sell to the most expensive restaurants they can find, but your notion of farming in the middle yeah. of Park Heights is very different. It starts in the community, and as I've said before here, we've um, been gardening there for five years. It's catching on. We are in discussions with the Park Heights Renaissance about expanding to other vacant lots in the community. Good. So we're excited about that opportunity in collaboration with them and also the city. Um, hopefully one day we'll at least have a designated area um, specifically to do what we do. That's to grow farms in the community and produce food for people um, pretty much year-round. Because it seems to me it's not, so, it's not such a crazy idea when you think of neighborhood by neighborhood that Park Heights, the community of Park Heights, could go a long mm-hmm. way to feeding the residents of that community and growing its own food. Since it right. you know, doesn't seem that Giant or, or anybody else wants to kind of move a grocery store into Park Heights, you've got to right. take hold of it yourself. Exactly, and that's, that's, uh, that's consistent with our history and legacy as African people in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's what's being left out of the narrative. Um, I'll use the example of Park Heights because there are a lot of vacant and abandoned um, lots and, and homes. And um, it's easy to, you know, hopefully take over a lot of them. Um, and like I explained, Chao Hurley, the new president of the, our interim president of the Park Heights Renaissance, supports it um, as well as the city. But also a few, you know, miles away in Ashburton. Uh, where there are no vacant and, and abandoned houses or uh, lots. Uh, the community there is collaborating, being led by um, B. Scott, to, mm. to use the uh, lots in their neighborhoods because, you know, nobody's using them. Maybe they're doing from using flower gardens and that kind of thing, but they want to systematically create areas to raise food. So this kind of thing is, um, um, you know, there's no end in sight to the benefits of it. But the fact that uh, once, you know, 
I guess one organization does it, or one individual does it, it picks up. And the Brassica Festival is about showing that it's not hard because people are intimidated by <laughs> some people are intimidated by washing greens. <laughs> so if you add, it does take a minute. Yeah, <laughs> it takes a little while. So if you add growing them and then cutting them and all that, um, you really get intimidated. But the, the festival is to showcase the simplicity of it, so that um, uh, people will attach to it. Not only that, to um, use individuals who who've done it so that uh, it's no longer a threat to your time, to your um, intelligence, to uh, simply grow in your backyard. And, and Warren Blue, before we go back to Karen, I mean, I think that, I mean, for you, the farming here and, and growing greens and more is almost like a religion. I mean, it's something that you deeply believe in. Oh, yes. At that you, I mean, you, one of the things we talked about in our last conversation together was you and your wife believe this is really a way to train other people that people can begin to feed themselves. I, and I don't mean to say this over and over again, but I think it's important to reiterate um, what you've done and what that means as an example of what others can do. Yeah, well, that's one of our big dreams uh, is to uh, install more greenhouses on our property and to work with people like uh, Willie Flowers up at the Park High Center, people out of the Maryland Extension Service and all to bring young kids in. So they can see from the time the dirt is there until the plants come up in their harvest, you know. You believe that we should be actually starting like an urban future farmers? Yeah. Well, like, they do have an organization that train different, you know, youths for being farmers. But we, I'm talking about bringing in younger kids that's not even part of that program. Right. You know, so they can learn, you know, 10, 10 12 years old, you know, running around in the streets in the summertime, nothing to do, you know, hey. Come and learn where your food come from. Learn how it's processed, so that you can know what you're eating. You know, and 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 what you eat, which is important. Most most kids, well, not even kids. Most grown folks don't even know what you eat <laughs> or the importance of what you eat. You know, yeah. So this is our plan down the future. You know, to 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 incorporate greenhouses for educational to grow more, because there's a lot of areas that, like Mr. Flower said. There's no grocery stores. I mean, there's nothing there, and, and there's grocery stores that are there. The people don't know where the foods are coming from. They don't know if it's sprayed, not sprayed, or what's being sprayed on it. And You know, until they get to the doctor 10, 15 years later and try to figure out what happened to me. You know, but, <laughs> and, I mean, we laugh, but it's, it's, it is the truth, though. Right, you right, know, and, right. and people don't think nothing about it, you know. But we hopefully we're going to try to change that around. You know, we're going to work on the same lines that Mr. Flowers going to work on. Uh, try to improve the community and everything else. You know, try to educate as much people as we can. You know, period. So I, I, I you know, I'm bringing back in Karen Washington. I think that I think that the more we do these kind of conversations on this program, um, I mean, it's important to realize we're not talking about something that is just a dream, a pipe dream, but something that you believe very deeply in that it is a reality that can be created. Yeah, I mean, let me say something about growing food. First of all, growing food in cities and all over the country is nothing new. Um, I'm right now, I'm upstate New York looking for land. I've been an urban farmer now for over 26 years. I'm right now standing in the midst of looking at 26 acres with a farmer who's willing to take a chance and give me and my partners three acres to grow food. I think it's very important that farmers leave a legacy Leave a legacy behind to really promote and encourage youth and young people and even older people to 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 farm again, to farm again. So many times and so in so many years, we've had people who live upstate, right? Who live upstate, but have land down south, but they don't go down south. I mean, they don't go right. down south to, to get that land. And so, how do we then capture that land? We capture that land by putting in land trusts. And giving it back to people who want to farm. Food is a natural right for all and not a privilege for some. We all need it. And so if we're going to move forward in the next generation of people who are healthy, then we must protect our food system. And the way we will protect our food system is growing it and understanding where it came from. And asking questions are like uh, the gentleman has said, has it been sprayed? How long has... Um, has it been on the shelf? How has it been processed? And so we need to have those 
those uh, conversations as well as promoting green jobs. And Karen Washington, the co-founder of Black Urban Growers, Bugs, um, is going to be in Baltimore this Saturday. Willie, tell us about Saturday very quickly here. Right. Saturday is, like I said, it's uh, our advocacy to bring, uh, it's, a, you know, it's our local community festival, first of all, and it, it involves uh, self-determination panels. Uh, we have an outdoor farm stand that Mr. Blue takes a part of, as well as the conference that includes everything from food tastings. We have a activity called BYOB, or Bring Your Own Brassica. It's a <laughs> potluck that uh, like is that. a tasting contest. And uh, we also have an evening re- reception that uh, will involve celebrating everybody involved with our season. Uh, and I, so, folks, the Park Heights, Park Heights Community Health Alliance sponsoring Brassica Fest 2014, as Willie just said, Willie Flowers just said, taking place this Saturday, November the 22nd, at the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg uh, Afro Center at, uh, located at 4151 Park Heights Avenue. Uh, this event will kick off at 9.30 with yoga meditation, followed by workshops, cooking demonstrations, community discussions, children's activities, holiday market, recipe contests, and more from 10 to 5 p.m. Uh, you can visit Brassica. Fest.com, which will be on our website, or contact Sasha Jones by phone at 443-844-9956 or email sjones at phcha.org. We'll have all that information on our website as well to check that out. Do not miss this. It's a very important event, uh, and we're going to do our best to be there as well, as we always do for all these Park Heights festivals, because uh, Willie Flowers and the crew of Park Heights are doing an incredible job to build community in a place that people say it couldn't happen. Of course it can happen, and he's, we're all showing it can happen. So Willie Flowers, Executive Director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, thank you, brother, for coming in. Always good to see you. Thanks for inviting us. And Karen Washington, look forward to meeting you on Saturday, co-founder of Bugs. Thank you so much for coming down to Baltimore. I'll be there, y'all. Everyone show up or be squared. That's it. <laughs> and my good friend, Warren Blue, thank you for coming in, man. Appreciate okay. it. I really appreciate being here. One of our great farmers. And human beings, he and his wife both. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Henry and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern is Sianna Greaves. Our theme music by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Do you hear this show again in the podcast, any of our past shows, and find information about what we've been talking about on the air? Please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download all of our podcasts on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.